This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks, welcome back. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli. Dan O'Mara this week is at the spa again. It was time for his bi-weekly tune-up. I think it's body sculpting is what they're working on for him this week. So we're expecting him back next week, uh, tan, rested, and more sculpted than before. And with us this week is our regular <laughs> voluntary co-host. Has had his arm twisted again this week. Yvonne Berenke, Professor of Management and Business Economics here at the Wharton School. Yvonne, welcome. Wonderful to be here. Uh, and my body is not uh, as well sculpted as it could be. <laughs> Well, when Dan comes back, I'm sure there'll be a spot available at the spa, and uh, I'm but, sure we get a we get an in the workplace discount. I think yeah. for Dan being a frequent flyer. Let me say, you know, in terms of six pack, I have one pack. Uh, one pack, five to go. <laughs> you know, I think the main way you you get the six pack look is by dehydration. All right, you're know, getting really skinny, right? Okay. And in the body, we had a bodybuilder on the show at one point, and. Uh, when the way they get those to boost your morale, <laughs> uh, yeah, made us all feel better. The producers asked uh, for it, um, and uh, the way they get that look, you know, of these tight muscles is they dehydrate themselves, so they can't do it for long. They can't keep that look for very long because, you know, you're in danger of dying if you keep that up, right? So not so good. But speaking of that, that's what we're going to talk about here first. Our rundown of stuff today, we're going to talk about wellness programs. And then after that, we're going to talk about, um, let's see, a little later in the show, what am I thinking about? We're doing uh, two words. We're doing charades, sounds like, a uh, little word, sounds like. We're going to talk about tax rates at some point. We'll talk about the tax rates a the little effect. later. And we're going to talk about some new findings from the conference board about what CEOs are thinking, all that kind of stuff coming up a little later in the show. We're going to start out talking about wellness, speaking of stories about uh, health and body sculpting and stuff like that. We're going to talk about wellness programs, which have become all the rage in lots of companies now, and they're getting increasingly, you might say, sophisticated or you might say complicated, uh, and to some extent they're getting invasive too. That is the extent to which companies are pushing employees to become healthier. And there's lots of different motives uh, for doing this. We might talk about those, and we might also talk a little bit about your experiences with wellness programs, right? That is what you personally have experienced with respect to wellness programs. If you've been in one, or especially if you're running one, uh, we'd like to hear from you. Let me just give you our number now. Yeah, listen it, to Peter because I, I'm really curious. You know, uh, to, we know that two thirds of companies have various forms of uh, wellness programs. Is it that many, really? Yeah, yeah, okay. and uh, it's, mm. it's very pervasive. But I'm curious about initial impressions when these programs come into play and whether people continued using them and why or why not. Mm -hmm. Because even if there's initial excitement. Uh, People just return to their normal life. And, yeah, uh, I understand that, but some people don't, and I, I'm really curious to hear. I have some theories about it. 
I'm really curious to hear from people why they did not continue to use mm-hmm. all those beautiful wellness offerings mm-hmm. um, can these companies make available. Yeah. And by wellness, I'm, I'm, going, I'm not talking about the free cereal bars. <laughs> okay. I'm talking about all the other things that uh, are floating around here. Right. Uh, and I should say, Yvonne has been studying topics related to this, so he knows um, more about it than the average bear here. But somebody who knows uh, a lot about it and done a really interesting study on this is Damon. So, Say the number. Oh, yeah. Our phone number, 1-844-WARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And if it's Thursday when you're listening, we are live, so you really will get an answer. If you call, the question is, what's your experience been with wellness programs? Are you running one especially? If you've participated in one, what's it like? What's your experience with us? And... To find out more about them, we have somebody who's been studying them, and that is Damon Jones, who's professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and I believe he is on. Damon, can you hear us? Yes. Hi. Perfect. Wonderful. Uh, So, Damon, let me ask you a little first, the obvious question here at the very beginning. Why did you decide to study wellness programs? That's a good question. Um, So, you know, first... Uh, health costs are always uh, an interesting topic and policy-relevant topic. How can we maybe stem the rapid growth of health costs? Okay. Um, so that's sort of the big picture thing. On a, on a more uh, micro level, uh, when I was uh, just coming out of grad school, I did a postdoc, and I they had a very nice wellness program at the place where I was doing my postdoc. Oh. Um, and so, you know, I was already kind of using the gym, and so I was happy to sign up for the wellness program. Okay. But more generally, I had a question about, you know, do these programs work and what are the effects? And so um, in order to really answer that question, you know, I teamed up with some colleagues at the University of Illinois, uh, David Molitor and Julian Reif, and we, okay. you know, worked with the university. Uh, they allowed us to basically create a wellness program to offer it and to do a randomized control trial. Oh, okay. That's cool. Uh, Damon, before we get started, let's just explain to people, if you would, what a wellness program is, because a lot of stuff that falls under that umbrella. What is a wellness program? Sure. So wellness programs are, uh, in the workplace, they are sort of benefits offered by employers to employees to incentivize them to um, basically improve their health and well-being and also possibly their productivity. Um, wellness programs come in a number of different uh, forms, but uh, generally they have one or more of the following components. There's usually a screening stage okay. where they will collect your biometric information and give you a risk assessment. That kind of tells you where you are and what you need to improve on. Uh, next, there are typically different types of wellness, what we would call wellness activities, that you can um, then follow up on the information with. So you can take a smoking cessation course or a weight management course, chronic disease management, or you know an exercise class or things of those nature. Yeah. Um, and so those are... Um, Sort of the two components, and then we also have uh, in our setting we used incentives to uh, reward people for completing the different stages of the wellness programs. Okay. Um, and and the one that we studied, we tried to offer all of those components to make it as comprehensive as possible. Okay. So that what are the rewards look like if you complete? Um, so they, you know, they, they those also vary um, across different places. In our setting, there were two sets of of rewards. So if you completed the screening, which is the sort of gateway into the study or into the program, um, 
we we actually randomized what you could get. So one group got zero dollars, one group got a hundred, and another got two hundred for completing that stage. Okay. Um, then thereafter, if you completed that, you had the chance to take up to two wellness courses over the the, fo- the following year. Okay. Um, for each course you complete, you would either get twenty five or seventy five dollars for completing. Um, and so we varied that to get a better sense of what the effects of these programs are. Uh, so in total, the incentives range um, between 50 and $350 in terms of oh. your maximum reward. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I'd note that um, you, in, in the field, you, you actually find uh, annual uh, incentives that exceed that amount. So I think maybe 20% of large firms may offer rewards in excess of $1,000 yeah. annually. Okay. <laughs> And and um, Damon, maybe for the listeners, um, you mentioned that this was a randomized controlled trial. Now, yeah. you know, people might understand, or you know, their experiments with a control and treatment group. But why is it particularly important, in in your opinion or in your experience, to do a randomized controlled trial on this question? Oh, that's a great question. So. Um the issue with the wellness programs, as I said, in my own case, is that I was attracted to the program in part because I was already engaging in what would be considered healthy behavior, going to the gym. Mm-hmm. So um, prior studies that look at wellness programs, um, it's not uncommon for them to compare people who participate to those who don't right. and then to attribute that to the wellness program. Um, the problem is, is that maybe the healthy people are the ones who sign up. So we want to break that link. And what we do with the randomized control trial is we take one group um, who can participate and one group who doesn't have the option. The group without the option is called the control group, and the group who can participate is the treatment group. Um, Since we randomly assign people to either group, um, they look very similar at the baseline. So now we don't have to worry about those who participate being um, the more healthy ones. Mm -hmm. Um, We split them up, and we have two comparable comparison groups. And then afterwards, after a year later so far, we're going to look over a longer horizon, but so far after a year, we compare those two groups, and we know the only difference between them has been that one was offered a wellness program and one wasn't. So this, uh, the randomized control trial is, in general, um, a good way to Mm -hmm. isolate the effect of the program. And in in this case, um, and as we found out, there's a there's reason there's a lot of concern that you would have about right. um, healthy people being the main ones to use the program. Right, and you could see why. Right, if you're already biking uh, and you're already lifting weights, uh, signing up to use the wellness program that involves biking and lifting weights, and you get an incentive to do it is a pretty easy thing. And for careful listeners who are taking notes while you're driving, this is an important thing to think about every time you hear somebody talking about the effects of a study like this. Uh, And that is you want to make sure that the results are not driven simply by the way the experiment or the study is is set up. So, uh, Damon, let's get into the study. And what did you find here? And we'll just remind listeners, we already got a couple hanging on the line here. Uh, If you'd like to tell us what your experience with it is, with the wellness program, give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON. There's an H in Warden, or 1-844-942-7866. So what did you find? Okay, so we found there's three major results. First, um, we offered different types of incentives, and what we found was that um, paying employees to participate works. More people um, are likely to participate as you raise the incentive, but only to a point. Okay. So from zero to a hundred dollars, there was a significant boost. From one hundred to two hundred dollars, there was a much smaller boost. Hmm. So mm-hmm. um, they work until a point. 
Um, okay. The second thing is, what are the effects of this program on health spending, uh, well-being, healthy behavior? And what we found, um, we actually looked at nearly 40 different outcomes, and for, in the majority of cases, we didn't find any effect within one year. Okay. So can, can, you, one year can, you give, can you give an example of what outcomes these were? Perhaps? Sure. So we looked, we had access to health claims from the insurers that covered these employees. And so we looked at average monthly spending. Um, and after one year, average monthly spending was essentially equal between the two groups, treatment and control. Okay. Um, we also measured healthy behavior. So we could track how many times you use the gym. We also linked our data to the local Illinois running event, actually the half marathon, 5K and 10K. Okay. Um, there again, participation rates were almost equal. So uh, we also asked survey questions about your own health behavior, your current health status, um, and we also asked about productivity. We didn't find any effects except for two effects. First, employees were more likely to say that their employer or their manager cared about their health and safety. Okay. So there could be a positive uh, you know, reputational effect. Second, people were more likely to say that they had had a screening. So um, to the extent that a screening is important in identifying health uh, problems, especially maybe for people with chronic diseases, like you know maybe a diabetes or high blood pressure, we did find an impact on that. But in the other, but in, uh, overall, we found very small impacts on most things. Um, right. And again, this is after one year. Right. So um, this screening makes sense and is not really a wellness program, I think. Right. I mean, it's not it's not changing your behavior. It's just having somebody check you out. So. Uh, well, it's information, and yeah. so okay. it's usually thought as one of the components along with the other features that you need. So, um, you know, maybe some people might have identified something, and maybe they can't act on it yet. Um, so it, it, some some wellness programs only consist of a screening, for right. example. Mm -hmm. so, um, but we did have an impact there, but in many other places we didn't find uh, an impact. Again, this is after one year. Okay. So this is a very, very well done study, and, you know, the, it's a, the kind of studies I'm doing too, but perhaps also to explain. So what's going on here? Because, you know, corporate America or all kinds of companies are doing these wellness programs, yeah. and they are rolling out more and more and more. Um, so what do they know that we don't know uh, that they keep doing that? Um, or is this all yeah. a sham or what's going yeah. on? And, and Damon, I must say, you're probably not going to get m invited to nearly as many parties now, <laughs> corporate parties, <laughs> as a uh, result yeah, of I'm this not, study. I'm the life of the party with them. I came to bear. That's the economist is, you know, calling. Yeah, right, right, right. So um, the third result actually relates to this. So the third thing we found was, Okay, there was a group who was offered the wellness program, but it was voluntary. Yeah. We looked at who was most likely to participate, and those people um, were already healthier in the sense that they had lower medical spending to begin with, and they also were more likely to have gone to the gym in the past before the study. Um, and other uh, measures go in the same direction. So the type of person who is most likely to participate and maybe who values the program the most is uh, actually a healthier, lower-spending subgroup of the, of the mm. employee, of the workforce. Okay. Um, so why would, employees why would employers offer this program? Well, one thing could be that even without effects, maybe that there are certain types of employees that really like it and they're trying to cater to those employees. Yeah. Moreover, they could... Now, we, we don't have evidence on this yet, but in the long run, maybe this makes them a little more likely to stay at the uh, firm. Yep. And um, yeah. if you get enough of that action, you can actually pay for the program mm -hmm. by shifting the composition of your risk pool or your insurance pool. Right. So that doesn't make society more healthy, but it could change 
who you have at your uh, mm-hmm. job. And, um, and I should say, this is my personal view on this. I, I don't believe that companies know a ton, a ton of the answers to these questions sure. and that we just got to figure out why they're doing it. I think they're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do, and they don't know what the effects are. But we got somebody on the line here who would like to tell us a little about their experience. I'm with very this. patiently waiting. Yep. Yes. Thank you, Michelle. Michelle's calling from Georgia. And Michelle, tell Hi. us what your experience is and what do you do with wellness programs? Sure. So I work for a national healthcare company, um, and I am a wellness coach um, for them. And so my job basically entails going to our different groups, usually groups that are 25 people or larger, and helping to initiate um, the wellness program that our company has developed. Okay. Tell us a little your your experience. So when when you put these in, you probably follow them a little bit. Why do you think the companies are doing it? Well, so that's um, and I get what the guy was saying. The, call, the caller before was saying about um, the whys that he's found out. But what we found out, um, and what we explained to our groups is that by creating a culture of wellness at your company, number one, you make your company more attractive to applicants Um, and number two is um, you're going to save your company a lot of money by getting these people to buy on to this wellness program you're going to have lower absenteeism because you're going to have happier and healthier employers employees Mm -hmm. and um, you're and through these biometric screenings and these regular well visits that we promote um, what we're hoping is that we'll catch some chronic diseases that you might not even, your population might not even know that they have. Mm-hmm. We'll start to treat those. Um, so we'll lower your what you're paying out in claims, which saves us money. It's mm-hmm. a win-win on both sides. And, oh, yep. by the way, we're creating a healthy population. Yep. Uh, well, uh, Michelle, here's the, the problem. Uh, demand does not find any of those effects. Um, and, uh, Demond, what do you, what do you think... Um, uh, companies certainly believe these these are happening. Do, do you think many of the companies are actually looking at these and finding these things? Uh, and if, are they looking the wrong way, or do you think they're not looking at all? What's your what's your feel? Well, I guess I could say a couple of things. Uh, one is that um, our program was internal, so to the extent that it does attract more people to your employer. Um, we couldn't really speak to that. So that effect could um, totally be um, operating and could be one reason why you do it. Um, we didn't find any effects. One caveat is that we looked within one year. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. It could be possible that employers have a longer horizon, and you know you might expect this to take longer than one year to yep. take hold. Yep. There are prior studies that argue that you could see these things very quickly, and we didn't find evidence consistent with that. Yep. Um, but there could be something that happens uh, over a longer horizon. Yeah, well, let me just remind folks we're talking to Damon Jones, who's a professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, about his study on wellness programs. Let me ask you, Anna Vaughn, this question. Um, when you look at interventions to try to improve people's health, do the effects typically get better, stronger over time, or weaker? Um, I mean, it's a longer period of time if you're doing it, but more people drop out, right? I think it, it, it depends on the um, the health um, issue that you want to address. Um, I've done one study that was an actually a deliberately simple health intervention which was on toothbrushing and you know with with toothbrushing you have a very fast feedback loop you know if you are brushing your teeth uh, 
the inflammation goes down and you immediately have feel the effect. And this fast, fast feedback loop led to uh, the effects to not just to persist, but also to strengthen over time. Right. Um, it is much harder when you're doing it uh, with interventions, for instance, with, with wellness, where perhaps initially you learn something new uh, that you didn't know and yep. perhaps you initially feel any better. But after a while, you don't really feel any better because yeah. you're, I mm -hmm. mean, you're not trying to become like a super Super human. tooth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's nothing else happening. Yeah. And then this is when people start to feel, oh, this is not changing anything anymore, which yeah. is not true because these are all internal processes in the, in the physiology that people don't know, no mm -hmm. longer notice. Mm -hmm. So it is really tied to the, to the health mm -hmm. component. I don't mm -hmm. know, Damon, what you think. Well, I, I would agree that um, one thing we learned or that I would, you know, take away from our study is that maybe people who are participating in these programs, they might not uh, expect to see immediate results. And so, you know, if there are longer term um, effects, then it would be important to learn how to keep people, um, you know, continuing in those programs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would, I would, I think uh, I do agree. Okay. Uh, Don, if you were to advise a company, as our previous caller Michelle uh, does, uh, and you were trying to, to get them to spend their money wisely to improve the health of their employees, what would you tell them to do? Um, I guess I would say a couple of things. One is... Uh, <clears throat> If they are going to offer a wellness program, what we found in our study um, was that the incentives beyond a certain point cease to have big effects on participation. So at the very least, it may make sense to revisit what your incentive level is and to see whether you can scale back without having a lot of adverse effects on the program. Okay, can I stop um, you there for a second? If, if you can't bribe them to do it, is there, are there other ways you can get people to do this, you think, other things that work? Uh, well, you know... Um, if we, you know, it took a lot of work experiment, but uh, maybe if we if we could do another one and mm -hmm. tweak some things, there yeah. are some other ideas out there that um, are interesting. So, you know, you're at Wharton, so there, you know, there are there are a lot of researchers at the University of Pennsylvania who have tried different behavioral interventions to uh, encourage more uh, participation in these types of programs. So, um, you know, for example, we had a we had a specific payoff, but maybe a lottery. Uh, might have a different effect on people. Okay. Um, another thing is, uh, you know, we, we are going to be looking into whether there appear to be peer effects in these types of programs. Right. Um, so that might be another substitute for financial incentive so to a, try a, to create yeah, a, peer incentives. Right. A peer effect might be that uh, you get a, a team of people or maybe an office to do it together or something. Or or how about sure. those, yeah, so those ones where some places I know they keep track of how you're doing and other people see it? What do you think about those? So, yeah, you could try to stoke the competitive uh, fires or the cooperative, uh, you know, spirit within your workplace um, by creating teams. Another thing is that there are some studies that looked at other types of interventions. But if you look at your uh, – if you find out who is a friend of who in your in your workplace, you might find that there are certain influential people in the social network. Okay. And then you might find that uh, treating them or targeting them has a bigger impact on the total workplace. Um, and so we, in our study, we, we actually we, we administered a survey and asked people who their friends are that they discuss health with. Okay. And so in the future, we want to um, explore the social network aspect and see are there certain types of people that are particularly, you know, you know connected to everyone else in the workplace. Okay. Um, and, and in the future, you might, you know, imagine that targeting them may have an impact. 
So, so Damon, I have um, I have an idea or an observation, which is when you actually look at why people don't behave in a more healthy way, what are their barriers to behavioral change? Uh, in many cases, those barriers are really trivial. Um, it is, you know, they they don't have fundamental philosophical <laughs> objections, yeah. and they they are also relatively well informed. Sure, you can they might have more information. And and so they are often they have like very simple barriers like you know oh honestly I just kind of forgot that I had to exercise more or they say oh I'm I'm too busy even though relatively small adjustments in the daily routine could address that but when I look at the wellness program so what I'm what I want to say is that there are very simple barriers to behavior but when I look at many wellness programs not not the, not the one that you in, implemented but when I look at the one here at the University of Pennsylvania. They end up being such a such a bureaucratic nightmare mm. to to get all the benefits, and there are so many components to it, making it super complex. And I actually have done some some studies where I compared very simple to more complex interventions. And when in these cases, when the interventions are just too complex, people just shut down. And you know, I I, I have the impression that this is more like a, a dream for health consultants who who make a big buck here with all these wellness programs. But it runs counter to the to addressing what the barriers are and the, the design of the incentives should actually be really, really simple so to get people hooked on this. I don't know what you yeah, think so, of this so idea. I think, uh, I think that's a good point. And I think we, we, we saw some of that with our study because relative to a wellness program, we were also doing research. So we had additional um, rules that we had to follow. And so we had to get everyone's consent for them to be in the study. Um, and we had to get, make them sign off and say that they were willing to share their data with us. Um, and that actually caused a drop-off in participation. Oh. Um, and so to your point, um, the more there is a paperwork um, or, you know, things, uh, procedures you have to go through in order to get started, um, those could probably cause a lot of, cause you to lose a significant number of people. Okay. Um, and we found that to be the case in our study as well. We still had a very sizable sample, but, you know, we lost some people at that stage. On the other side, there are currently, you know, um, if you haven't, if you, you might have heard, there's currently sort of a legal uh, case being um, decided right now but um, with the Equal Employment Opportunity uh, Commission. So there is a, you know, basically there are questions about how voluntary these programs are. Oh, so what, what so, is the, can you just tell us briefly what the case is? Because I don't think we know. Well, um, so uh, normally with health information, um, there are strong uh, regulations in place to keep that data safe and secure. Um, and so there are certain um, uh, waivers or exceptions that are made for this health data insofar as they are used for wellness programs. Um, but there, there has been sort of a charge that or a claim made that, well, if you have big enough um, incentives for these wellness programs, they cease to be completely voluntary. Right. Um, and then you have people involuntarily sharing their sensitive health information. And so this was brought um, to, in, to the courts to get clarity on these rules. Uh, there was a thought that these rules are not uh, clear enough, and we may be in violation of some of these HIPAA uh, and other uh, – there, there are other regulations about your genetic information. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so, they, so that is um, – that is well, what that means is that the things that you learn from behavioral economics to try to nudge people and kind of just seamlessly get people into these programs, um, they they may run counter to these other uh, uh, ideas we have about having people transparently know, you know 
when they're sharing their health information. Yeah, I, I think you're, you might be. I mean, I'm not a lawyer on this, and fortunately for us, Dan, Dan O'Mara is not here to to weigh us in with this one, or unfortunately, I should say, Dan. Um, but I suspect that if you're worried about the law, you're probably safer nudging than you are trying to pay people, right, because the courts yeah. really notice the, the pay. Uh, Damon, maybe the last thing here about advice, sure. what kind of interventions do you think make the most sense if you're thinking about ban for the buck? Uh, that is, um, yeah. you know, it sounded like the initial screening matters a lot, right? Beyond that, what do you think works best? Well, um, we are going to be looking into different subpopulations, um, but so far, you know, what our hypothesis is, is that maybe there, for the screening, for example, there may be big effects in a subgroup of people who you identify as having like high blood pressure, diabetes, or those kind of chronic conditions, especially yep. ones that can be easily treated with some uh, prescription drugs. Right. Uh, okay. So, uh, so we're going to focus in on those groups, and maybe we might find different results. Uh, from the, what I know from the prior literature is that, um, to the extent that you can get people to do smoking cessation uh, programs, th- those have tended to re- show bigger returns on investment from the prior study, uh, prior literature. Of course. Uh, there are different levels of quality of studies, but they, you know that's my sense from okay. my scan of the literature. Yep. Um, unfortunately, in our case, and maybe for better or worse, there are not a lot of smokers left in our sample. So yeah. um, mm-hmm. there's a limited extent to which we could target them. Right, sure. Uh, Damon, thanks very much for being with us. Really interesting stuff. Damon Jones is professor at the Harris School of Public Policy, University of Chicago. His study on wellness is available on the National Bureau of Economic Research's website. And uh, maybe before we break, let's just maybe talk about uh, seeing how we could wrap uh, this up a little bit, Iman. I think the the interesting thing about wellness programs is they are coming together with efforts in other areas uh, of company behavior on the health insurance side uh, to try to push people to be healthier. That is, you're starting to charge people different prices for their health insurance. And there are also some interventions that companies are doing in terms of delivering health care that seem to be pretty effective, and those are ones that are associated with putting the providers, you know, doctors in the plants or nurses in the facility who are basically kind of checking up on people, particularly for chronic illnesses where all the, all the costs are, right? It's... The big three, hypertension, diabetes, and the other one I can't remember, um, are the chronic diseases where 75% of our healthcare costs are. And mainly getting people to take their medicine, uh, follow doctor's orders seems to be the big story there. I think we've been uh, maybe thinking too hard about incentives as the solution to all our healthcare problems or a lot of our healthcare problems for employers, you know, because um, it doesn't seem to be working all that well. Yeah, I mean, that that is that is true. You know, um, listen. You know, the, the great thing about money is that uh, you can buy milk with it. Uh, so, uh, it, it is so fun- what we economists would say it's so fungible. So uh, it is. It has a strong. Uh, it is a strong instrument if if used well. And uh, you know, uh, it is always the quest to understand how to use it best. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are, there are there are limitations to it. Apparently, I. I, I strongly believe that um, health and in chronic health, because we are getting older, um, you know, the majority of Americans are, are overweight, uh, uh, over a third are obese, uh, mm. a third of the people should be on statins, uh, a daily medication for cholesterol lowering. 
And uh, what I know also from from my studies is that what is particularly affected is uh, human interaction. Oh, you mean right. like your friends are well, losing weight and so you lose weight? No, no, none of that. You know, that's okay. social stuff that is so complicated. I don't okay. want to talk about okay. it. <laughs> All right. No, what I'm talking is simply having a nurse call you every day to re- talk yeah. you through whether you've taken a medication. Right, right. Um, if mm-hmm. you are someone... Um, who has to walk more because you know you came came out of a an operation and you need to be make sure that you're more mobile. Having someone to call you every day to see whether you are on top of it and whether you have any questions or any concerns about it. Right. Those are extremely effective. I mean, just just to illustrate, I've also done a study where we had to recruit uh, 800 people into the study, and first we tried it by letter. Um, and we had uh, less than 1% of people replied. And then we started just simply calling them and asking them, you know, can I help you with uh, this? Do you have any questions? And then our reten- uh, recruitment rate jumped from 1% to 16%. Wow. And mm-hmm. we didn't tell them anything they didn't already know. Yeah. Uh, it is just people just like to have this interaction. And, mm-hmm. you know, this will be mm-hmm. the the great future, mm-hmm. your whole parts of the population will be just engaged in helping other parts of the population with these simple human interactions. And yeah. I'm not talking about app-based or some, some, some alert on your phone. It is right. a really person. The, a person uh, yeah. talking to you yeah. Um, yeah. is extremely effective. Yeah. Uh, don't know yeah. why. Maybe we can replace it by a computer someday. Um, you know, Siri, why, why Siri or yeah. yeah, or the Amazon thing. Yeah. Um, but that um, that is, I think, mm-hmm. uh, an underexplored area yeah. that has, yeah. uh, and that is that is something that is not paid for by insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. Yeah, we know Even that they work, yeah. and uh, they are not being paid yeah. for. Interesting. And this is really crazy. Yeah, yeah. folks, we're going to take a break now. We're going to come back and talk about CEOs, C-suite issues, how they're viewing the world, how they're viewing the workplace. We'll be right back with you in three minutes. Hang in there. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 